Welcome to the latest episode of Schneps Connects. This is uh, Josh Schneps. Today's guest I have with us, Ed Matthews, who's CEO of Adapt Community Network. Ed's early career includes working for the New York State government, implementing the 1975 federal consent judgment to find programs and homes in local communities for over 5,000 persons with intellectual and developmental disabilities. As of 2016, 7.37 million people in the United States had intellectual or developmental disabilities, according to the Institute on Community Integration at the University of Minnesota. During the past 33 years, Ed has overseen the growth of ADAPT Community Network from supporting individuals and families who need assistance due to these disabilities in four boroughs of New York City, to now supporting over 25,000 families and individuals in a wide variety of services in eight counties, including the Hudson Valley. Ed, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be here, Josh. Thank you. So I know a lot of the work that you have done over the years has overlapped really with uh, some of the work that my parents did as well. So it was great to know that uh, you've known them over the years. Yeah, I knew, uh, of course, I knew Murray very well as one of the plaintiff's attorneys. And, you know, he did some uh, great work also in the uh, in the lawsuit for Suffolk Developmental Center. You know, Willowbrook yes. just set the stage for so many other lawsuits around the country that finally, as they started going from east to west, states finally gave up and just the institutional love without your parents suing them. But of course, your mom has been a driving force behind uh, the creation of WORC and uh, several other organizations has been instrumental in making sure that folks with developmental disabilities have the life that they choose. And she's done a wonderful job, but not only is creating the publication advocate, you know, empire that she has, but also maintaining her role as a staunch advocate for folks. So it's great to be here and great to be part of the organization. Thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate it. Talk a little bit about your history and how you got involved in, in the fight for those with disabilities. Yeah, unlike, unlike many people, I sort of fell into it by accident. You know, a lot of folks enter the field because of a relative or other that they had somebody they knew or some other personal reason. I had worked in the mental health field for a while and then with the, the New York City Department of Education for about a year. And then I didn't think I could make much of a difference there. So it was just really in networking with people that I wound up for at AHRC for a period of time. And then my friend Mike Mascari says, if I could come down to the state because of the Willowbrook consent judgment. And so I spent the next decade helping develop programs to get people out of the institution and into the community. And of course, in those early days, there were a lot of community opposition, which you don't find anymore. But you know, the, the, and, you know, we've had acceptance now for a long period of time. But in the early days, there was a lot of misinformation and a lot of misunderstanding about who was going to be living in the community and what they're going to be doing. But, of course, all the agencies from then to now create they're good neighbors and we create real opportunities. And the neighborhood really, generally speaking, gets involved in, in working with us and so on. So it's uh, that was a great period of time. And that's when I found the career. You know, some people find their career early and as I say many times, the career found me at that point in time. And so some years later, I was uh, selected to be really only the second CEO of, uh, at the time, UCP of New York City. And that's where I've been for the last 33 years. You know, it's interesting you brought up the community opposition. I know my parents had to fight like hell to open up the first life's work home in uh, Little Neck, Queens. The house on Gaskell Road was, uh, you know, I was involved with them with that uh, when I was working for the state. And it was, uh, of course, you know, Geraldo, who remains very active and very supportive of the organization, 
was was a great help in getting the news stories out there and uh, and still is. You know, at that time, there was no organized way for the community to participate. So it was only in later years when uh, when the uh, then commissioner, Jim Introne and Clarence Sundrum from the governor's office got Senator Padovan to uh, help create a law that you know, created some organized way for the state and the community to interact with each other about the placement of residential programs. And that sort of worked. I mean, it really has, for the last 40 some odd years, allowed communities and, and the state and, and the voluntary sector to interact with each other and, and create an accepting way for communities to get involved. And that's really worked very well. What would you feel are some of the most or the, the biggest accomplishments over your career in terms of the cause to help those with disabilities? Yeah, you know, I never consider them personal accomplishments. I mean, you know, this uh, working here is like anything else. It's a team sport. So you are completely dependent upon creating uh, an atmosphere in which those that share your vision and share your passion for the work can do their thing. And I think probably that's, you know, if anything, that's what we tried to create uh, at ADAPT. It's, we create an atmosphere where you know, we recruit the people who have a real feel for the work. It's, it doesn't even have to be the smartest person. It just has to be for somebody who has real interest, real feel, and a real connection to make sure that folks have, are living their best life. And I think that's probably something that I look back on it uh, as something I'll be the most proud of. But, you know, we've done a lot of things since I've been here. You know, we had a fairly small organization. And as you mentioned earlier on, we're up in eight counties. We're trying to not just grow to grow, but we're trying to strategically go to places where I think people could most use our help and most use what we bring to the table. And that's working very well for us. I think one of the great accomplishments that we've had is creating a really robust family support program. I mean, we've had the opportunity to do that. We hold a couple of conferences every year for parents and caregivers. And we, we try to stay on top of for parents of all ages, of kids of all ages. I mean, from preschool to school age, parents to uh, focusing on transitions, you know, from one lifespan to another, from school to work to living in the community really working with families so that they have the best information and the most opportunities to be successful. And I think that's where we've sort of set ourselves apart from some other places, not in the provision of direct services, because many people do a really good job and we're one of them. But I think we're, you know, our ability to really reach so many families over 20,000 a year at this point and get them the best information to help make great decisions for them and their loved ones is probably the thing we're most proud of. You know, I know there's been a couple of big challenges. One is, you know, being able to manage, and you have 3,000 employees, being able to manage people through the pandemic. And the other one is just being able to recruit, hire, and train during the pandemic. How have you been able to work through those challenges? Not well. I mean, you know, that's for the entire industry and or any industry at this point in time. Recruiting a stable and retaining a stable workforce has been uh, an enormous challenge. You know, our vacancy rate for direct care positions and so forth, like many other uh, organizations, is uh, an enormous issue for us. Fortunately, the people we have, you know, are not only reliable, but making sure that, you know, nobody's needs go unmet. But at the same time, the things that we would normally be able to do and, you know, and go out in the community and do a lot of outings, and not only for the pandemic reasons, but for lack of staff has been a real challenge for us. Now, I think the people we have we do a lot of training. They're really, they're really well trained and well dedicated. But recruiting of a stable workforce right now is an enormous issue. Government is helping, believe it or not. This is in their best interest as well to ensure that there's a stable workforce. So mm -hmm. 
Uh, there's been a lot of federal and state money coming in for bonuses and recruitment strategies. And so some of that will help, but I still think we're a bit away yet from being able to recruit sufficient amount of people to do the things that we want to do. You guys are one of the largest providers of early childhood services. Talk to me about those services and, and the challenges associated with those, as well as how important it is for early intervention. One of the challenges is convincing government that early intervention is a real service. I think part of the problem that they see is that many kids in early intervention go into segregated <laughs> classrooms at age three, just like kids who didn't get early intervention. So yeah. I think that for us, we have some anecdotal, but not great, not great evidence, but there are you know, kids who, are, who receive therapies earlier on, walk faster, talk faster, and you know, are integrated in with their non-disabled peers much better. And I think that last part is, I think, one of the key things that people miss is that integration for children and adults with disabilities is still the biggest challenge that we face. So when kids are out there and can do things with their typically developing peers, then their life becomes just less of a challenge over time. But it's been through the pandemic, a real, real problem for us and for every other early, early childhood provider, you know, because there's only so much education for kids with limited attention span and and with parents who may or may not be able to spend all that time working with their children through the day in terms of you know helping with uh, physical therapy and speech therapy and so forth mm-hmm. so that's been you know if you're asking me do i think that that's the population that had from the purview of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities is that the population that suffered the most i'd say without question that, you know, some of these kids are just further behind than they ever would have been. I mean, we can catch up, but one of the reasons that uh, the state has said, well, you know, you can keep kids in preschool a little bit longer, or even in the school age programs a little longer, because there's this real knowledge that that's a population that has been most impacted by, by the lack of service hmm. or remote service. You know, we're always supposed to learn from mistakes in life, but sometimes in politics, it doesn't work that way. And you see that history in in some cases repeats itself. And I think, you know, particularly for those with disabilities, you know, people can't be forgetful of the past of what the horrors of institutions were and all the benefits that are becoming available through group homes and day programs. But what risks are there out there in terms of elected officials being knowledgeable of best practices? And what can we do to communicate how critical services are that you provide and and how much more effective the settings of homes are versus institutions. In many cases, you're a step away from people saying, well, you know, it's much easier and much cheaper to house people in larger settings and we don't have to spend all this money. We don't have to do this. We don't have to do that. I think right now, even in the worst of times, I think the attitude about that is far different than it might have been before. It's, I don't think that there's from a community standpoint, from a population standpoint, I don't think there's any appetite for people with uh, developmental disabilities to be housed anymore or to receive less or fewer or no services. I think now there's a population out there that even companies are starting to see that there's a lot of kids, you'll see a lot of kids with autism, there's TV shows surrounding people with autism, with cerebral palsy, with you know Down syndrome. And I think Corporate America dictates a lot of public policy. Corporate America is realizing that they look better by identifying that they too are not only accepting of, but promoting of services and equality for people with disabilities. So 
I'm less concerned about that than I used to be. But at the same time, funding is an issue all over. When government gets strapped, I mean, they look around for ways to, to reduce funding for various, you know, disenfranchised groups of people. So, but the advocacy here throughout the country from providers and parents and advocacy groups, I think, has been so staunchly accepted by government officials. So I'm not as concerned about that as I used to be, but I'm happy it's, always, it's always an issue on any given day. Well, you know, sometimes if there's less ignorance or more people are impacted by something, that changes uh, the course of things. Right. I mean, so that, you know, we went from the NIMBY days of the 70s and 80s, you know, not in my backyard, to basically you don't even hear that anymore. If an organization provides services and open up a new home in the community, almost never. It's really an odd thing now if you hear the community's not accepting of that. So I think, at least from that standpoint, from a public policy and community acceptance standpoint, we're at a different level than we've been. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. Let's talk a little bit more about your services, particularly the telehealth program. Can you share a little bit uh, about those offerings? Well, you know, telehealth, uh, we work with an organization called Station MD, which is probably the largest provider of telehealth services, at least on the East Coast. Right before the pandemic, we started introducing telehealth particularly in the group homes. I mean, one of the great expenses for someone's medical health and the Medicaid is emergency room visits. And when someone has some, you know, to the staff, which are trained, but not experts and have some serious symptoms in a group home in the late evening or overnight or places where the doctor's not ready available, uh, the tendency was just to be protective of them and us is to bring them to the emergency room. And with telehealth now, somebody has to be in pretty bad shape for, for us to make an emergency room visit. So from the just acceptance standpoint and just quality of life standpoint, it's been really terrific. And during the pandemic, of course, when you know people were not going out, not making regular doctor visits, at least the ability to consult with a physician, have that physician be able to monitor uh, vital signs and everything through the magic of the internet has been a godsend, quite frankly. And it's something we intend to expand more on. We've been working with the Department of the New York State Department of Health on a statewide grant to uh, for all the uh, CP affiliates throughout the state to provide even more telehealth. Uh, we ourselves are working with them on a mobile van that will bring telehealth services into communities so that for psychiatry and some of the other services that don't require real examination, make it more convenient to people to see their doc, to adjust their medication. Mm-hmm. And be able to uh, and to be able to live a, a more robust life than they might have. So we're really working on that. And we're very proud of that. Telehealth is really, I hope, here to stay. Right now, it's been authorized through the public health emergency. But I think both the state and federal government are realizing it's not only good for people; it saves them money, and of course, they like that. Yeah, I think the pandemic, if we've taken anything you know positive out of it, certainly the way we communicate in certain ways has improved. Talk a little bit about the launch of your new website called Start Here and how that's helping parents. The greatest problem, you know, for a parent of an infant and toddler who's been diagnosed with any type of developmental disability is one of what do I do now? As kids get older, you know, parents become advocates and they're good and, you know, they you know notice it as much. But there isn't a parent who's ever said that when their child was diagnosed with a disability or a condition that their first question wasn't what do I do now, even though... They may know somebody, but for themselves, it's what do I do now? So what we're trying to do is just provide some ideas about what can you do now? What are the questions you need to ask? 
Who are the people in your neighborhood that you really need to be in the life of you and your child? How do you have to think about it? How do you organize your thinking in order to be able to be the best advocate for, the best parent for your child? Where are the places in your neighborhood? And we're, we're trying to build this out so that we connect with organizations throughout the country so that if someone says, hey, in Omaha, where can I go? What's the first person I can go see that within you know, some degree of separation, we'll be able to answer that question. But right now we're providing just sort of directional things and telling people they can get through this, that it'll be okay, that you know their child and they can have a very good life, that it's not the end of the world, but there are some challenges that you'll have to be able to meet. And here's some ways we can help you and you can help yourself meet them. And so that's what, that's literally the meaning of Star Here. And we intend to build that out now, Josh, on, on for other life transitions, you know, from early childhood right. school, from school to adulthood, from living in the community. So we're going to, to try to build that out as it goes around. But right now, we're sort of concentrating on the early childhood services, and we'll be bringing some webinars and some exits and some kind of TED Talks uh, activities to it as time goes on. And Ed, that website is startheareparents.org? Yes. Terrific. Well, listen, we're very excited to have you be one of our upcoming healthcare heroes. And I would love maybe for you to just share a little advice of what you would give fellow leaders that are facing the challenges of where we are in today's pandemic or hopefully post-pandemic life, let alone just lessons that you've learned over your long career. The biggest thing is, you know, in our for staff that are just starting to work in this field, you know, we, we tell them it's it's not complicated. It's work hard, have fun, and make a difference. And I think that for all of us, if we approach our work life that way, I think that's really the key to, I think, a successful work career and a successful, being successful in anything you do in life. I think you have to enjoy it. I think you have Mm -hmm. to do it to the best of your ability. I think the key to it is whatever you do in whatever field you're in, make a difference, you know, Trying to make a difference. You know, you're making a difference in these podcasts. I'm making a difference where I am. And, you know, there's so many of the, and the healthcare heroes that you're, that you're honoring uh, tomorrow night and those that have gone before, I think they would all agree with that. That's the key to, I think, making a great work life and uh, a great career. So you have, to, you have to work hard, but you also have to do that, make a difference with people that also share that philosophy. It's good advice, Ed, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time to share the work that you're doing and keep uh, fighting the good fight. Thank you very much, Josh. I look forward to celebrating with you at the Healthcare Hero event. I'm very honored to be there. Thanks again. Make sure to listen to our podcast by visiting podcast.schnepsmedia.com or stream us online wherever you get your podcasts.